They say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But what if those intentions were more sinister from the beginning? I'm Nikki B, resident pop culture expert, here with utopian history expert Danny McCarthy. We're going to take a deeper look at the sci-fi movies that we love and see if maybe what we always thought were warnings were really blueprints. Join us as we pull at the crimson threads in our beloved cinema. Welcome to The Road to Hell. Welcome back, everybody, to the Road to Hell Film Reviews podcast. I am Daniel McCarthy, and I am joined, as always, by Nikki P. How are you doing today, sir? How are we doing there, folks? We're living the dream, man. So today we're talking about a strange but very good movie called Children of Men. If my notes are correct, this thing came out in 2006. Does that sound right? That is what I have on my end as well. Splendid. So this is a... uh, sort of departure from what we've been doing lately. The past couple movies we've done have been these sorts of kind of cheesy sci-fi movies, which are fun and great in their own right. But Children of Men is like a genuinely good movie. There's nothing corny about it. There's nothing dumb about it or hokey or ironic. Even if there was, this movie is incredibly bleak. Yes. (laughs) So like the tone is just very different than what we could have a lot of times gone over. Yeah, it's depressing. I mean, well, okay. Spoiler alert, everybody, which if you watch this show, you should know already. We spoil everything. The main character dies. At least it's heavily, heavily implied that he dies in the very last scene. So that's sad. Also, at the very beginning, you think he's going to have this like rekindled love romance thing with his ex-wife, I guess. And then she gets shot through the neck very abruptly. So like just every time they dangle out in front of you this hope or maybe everything's going to be all right for this main character. It's not. Everything sucks. (laughs) But but I think it's done well. It's not just like misery porn. It's done in a way that actually makes sense. Well, well, they leave it with an open end where you're the the main, the other main character will say does potentially end up perhaps saving humanity. We don't really know because like there's every things that ambi- ambiguous and this is the, the, what i gathered from the book or from the movie was a lot of human like no one knowing who to trust because we're kind of at the last gasps of we're all just gonna die out if you haven't seen the movie the main premise of the movie is that at some point in the past human beings stopped being able to have babies yeah so the movie picks up in like 2027 i think and nobody has had a baby for about 18 years the the the, the, the opens up where you're watching a newscast about the young person on the earth and he's killed in some horrible event yeah and it's a highly symbolic thing too so like people all the world over are mourning little diego i think his name is and he was a dick like the kid was a complete prick because he was a celebrity because he was the youngest person on earth so he was celebrated and hailed as you know the the future of mankind i presume And then he's killed and people are leaving wreaths on the friggin, you know, curb and crying about him and putting up memorials and stuff. And it struck me sort of mankind's impulse towards the symbolic when it comes to social organization. (laughs) I mean, you know, we've all seen it before, especially like maybe after 9-11. There's a whole lot of symbolic flagellation almost that people subject themselves to the symbolic like yellow ribbon of troop worship. I don't know. It just, maybe it's not a a tight connection. It just struck me that the people didn't know or care about this young individual. They didn't. So how could they possibly really care or feel all that grieved when he died? 
it was just that he represented youth. He was the last child. He represented the future of mankind. He was a symbol. In the, I'll, I'll switch over and start talking about... I actually went and read the book because I was super interested in this. They actually refer to his generation in the book as the Omega generation. Oh, wow. They're in the book, in the time period, they're actually doing active testing. Like all men and women are constantly tested for fertility. And the point that we come into, it's been about 18 years. The the point we've come into the story, they kind of are like getting more lax about it. Cause just, they've given up hope. Like they they go through the motions, but there there's no after basically almost twenty years they've given up the the idea that there is actually going to be a solution to this problem. So like humanity has crossed over a place, or like they've just accepted that they're they're going to end. Wow. Hence the idea of the Omega Generation. A couple big differences in the book versus the movie. And by the way, the movie is considerably better than the book. The book was written by. P.D. James uh, in 1992, and she was 30 years into her writing career and wrote, I guess, a very different type of novel in my, from what I can read. She ended up dying at like 92, so she was an old lady. Oh, wow. And she'd like, she'd lived a life, say, put it this way, in the 40s, she was going into school and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So she was around a while, almost, I would have been 100 years old by the time the actual movie came out. But the story itself is actually about a really shitty British aristocrat who happens to be the cousin of what is essentially the British dictator. And He's approached by this group of people to go and basically try and talk his cousin into some changes. He tells them it's not going to work. It's all bullshit. But whatever you want me to do, I guess I'll try to do that kind of thing. And it works out the way he does. But he kind of gets invested with this group. It might be, like, when I say this, he's a shitty guy. Like He's your typical aristocrat. Really doesn't care anything about anyone. He's a college professor. Likes talking about history. He has like pushed away his wife. He, uh, in an accident, like accidentally ran over his child when like she was an infant or like a toddler. And so like there's always that pressure between him. And, and, what's, it, and the way he talks about it is incredibly callous. Like, like he ran over his cat. He's not a likable guy. And essentially, mo- most of the story is trying to get the girl to safety. In the book, what's different is when he's brought into things, he's brought in basically because he has a car that the government doesn't know. They're a, like five people or six people involved in their little cadre of revolutionaries and the whole thing is centered around the fact that they all know she's pregnant so he kind of picks up at that point and he wants to help her do the right thing now what's different about this is that, like in the movie she doesn't know who the father is or doesn't talk, say who the father is basically in the book she's been screwing everybody in this little cadre and the guy who thinks he's the father isn't the father and the guy who thinks he's the her father also has like the only reason he's involved is political ambitions. He thinks that when the child happens, he's going to become the new dictator by virtue of like having the power to create kids because his you know he's got the the semen right and and that's his, it's sad but that's his only interest in this like as it turns out it's another character's son and so that guy runs off and actually tells the what do you ever call it the dictator where to find them 
and they managed to like they managed to get to a point where they could have the baby in isolation and shortly thereafter the dictator shows up and what ends up happening is the the main character ends up shooting the dictator in the face and kind of saying now look i have a a child here and you know it, kind of like in the movie there's that moment of awe where everyone's just kind of dumbstruck like we don't know how to react at the at very end of the book there's a similar moment where like in the confusion, he just kind of convinces everyone to do what he says because he has a kid. Wow. He, it's not like there's a good relationship between him and this other girl. It's just that he happened to be the guy that was there. or Maybe he's the guy that she chose because of his aristocratic background to be there. It's not really clear. It's also not a very good good book. I was not impressed with the writing on it, but it was interesting to see kind of what it focused on versus the movie. Because to me, the the book was more interested in the dynamics and aspirations of power. Okay, and they don't focus a lot on that in the book or in the movie. Power. It's more about like the way that an event would affect humanity, and like humanity is different in like in the book, but it's not as blown up as it is in the, the movie for sure like there's a more catastrophic end of times feeling in the book or in the movie power in the movie it seemed to me was almost secondary the world has effectively collapsed there's a scene early on in the film where the television on the bus is playing a basically a propaganda piece and it just lists off all these different countries, Syria, Somalia, United States, Australia, Germany, France, blah, blah, blah. And it just runs through this list and like all these countries have collapsed and it says like only Britain soldiers on or something like that. Because the movie's set in Britain, in case we didn't mention that. So everything's fallen apart and Britain is basically like a, a dictatorship at this point, but it's not like a sleek, you know, high tech totalitarian kind of what I would call utopian dictatorship. It's it's nothing like that. It's like a shitty tin pot dictatorship that's just barely being held together by, you know, bubble gum and duct tape. But so there's the power there and it's very brutal and authoritarian and the police and soldiers are terrible. Soldiers are on every street corner, that kind of thing. But the movie doesn't focus so much on what what are the political intricacies of the situation in Britain. To me, it seemed as if the movie was trying to tell us this is just what the world looks like with no kids. So, like, the power study was in the backseat. The power study was almost a... a a symptom of the childlessness. And it, it really seemed to me that the movie was trying to get the viewer to feel that a world without children and a world without reproduction would just inevitably fall apart. And it would be authoritarian, yes, but it wouldn't even be like a competent authoritarian. It would, it's just everybody is f frazzled and anxious and on edge. Uh, the soldiers are on edge. Everybody's on edge. And that's what struck me. As far as power analysis goes, it was less about like a theory of the state and more about human beings lacking a very fundamental part of their nature, which is reproduction. And then what happens in response to that? And it, it ain't pretty. Well, you and I will be the first to tell people there is an economic reality to no children. The current way all of the world's economic systems function 
is essentially the older generations fleecing the younger generations of their wealth. That's why you constantly have to have a larger generation than the generation before you because to get the tax base to do all of the things that the generation before you wants, you need more people to fund it. So what happens when your tax base no longer exists? Like you're going to the reason it's a tin pot dictatorship as opposed to a, an advanced society is because there's no more wealth coming in. You've who's there to rob from all those people that should be 20 years old out starting careers, making money. They don't exist anymore. So you're dealing on the wealth of the aging and you're dealing with the fact that the more people die, the less money government systems have to function with. Yeah. And the more need that you have for government functions because of an aging population. Yeah. So it's inevitably going to be screwed up as basically more people to take care of and less people to do work to take care of them. Right. So there are these economic realities, but then also a kind of, I guess you might say, spiritual reality that sets in as well. Well, like mm -hmm. economically and spiritually, the human race in this movie is depleted. Like nobody's happy. What's the point of innovation if there's no world to enjoy it afterwards? Right. There's nothing. There's no hope. There's no future. And then suddenly this young lady who is a, a refugee. I don't remember from where or even if they say it, it, they don't get into it. It's not really important. No. Uh, basically, refugees are a class in the book. It's like there's a couple different things that the revolutionaries in the book wanted, which was specifically they wanted better treatment of refugees and they wanted uh, the, like, the prison Basically, the prison island, the island of men, I think they call it there, which is essentially where they send everyone who doesn't assimilate into the new society and do everything they want. It basically, it's a penal colony run by the criminals. They want that ended because, like, you know, there's people that end up there that shouldn't be there. But all the things they want aren't things that are popular. They're things that, like, no, no, like, we want safety here in our, our old age, frankly. I don't want rapists and murderers running around. Whether or not they did it or not, it's kind of irrelevant. Better safe than sorry for me. Yeah, so in, in the movie, lets a little bit of that shine through. Like, it's clear that the refugees are their own class. They don't get so much into the penal colony or any of that, but refugees are treated very poorly. The movie makes it a point over and over again to kind of outline certain political realities, one of which is complete and total closed borders in Britain. So, like, everything's locked down. And uh, there's a huge concern about illegal immigrants, which I thought was interesting. But uh, continuing with that vein, one of these illegals is a, a refugee, and she is pregnant. And she's the first person to be pregnant for something like 18 years. And naturally, because she's this second class, not even citizen, she's very concerned that the government, when they find out she's pregnant, is going to take her baby away from her and do God knows what with it. Probably, you know, give it to some aristocratic family or whatever. You, you know, you can imagine what might happen. So she's very concerned. And our main character, Theo, is kind of this, you know, dejected, rugged, non like like an anti-hero sort of guy, I suppose, uh, who's working for what is it, the Department of Energy, something like that? It's probably, and he and they show he he has a loose affiliation to somebody higher in government. Yeah, that's why he's tapped initially, and he also has a history 
of having dabbled in revolutionary forces when he was younger. But he's kind of, you can tell as a character, he's kind of moved into his adult phase where like he's given up on the idea of revolution and just kind of wants to get by. And this, we later learn, is sort of motivated by the loss of his own son. So he and his wife had a young son, Dylan, and the kid died in a flu pandemic, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, The kid died and he and his wife split up and he just kind of gave up on the whole activist life. You know, understandably, he just lost all hope, went to work for the government. But then 20 years later, his former wife shows up who she is still active in the kind of like revolutionary circuit. And uh, it's it's she who puts this pregnant girl in touch with him. And uh, unfortunately, our hero, Theo, his wife is killed, as I said earlier, but um, he remains in touch with the pregnant woman and eventually sees her through to uh, apparently a group of people who can take care of her. uh, We hope. (laughs) And and that's one of the big things is like these people have a faith because there's there's absolutely no one has any proof that this organization like the the humanity project exists they just it's an idea which makes for like one of the bleakest endings in the world is there he's shot she's carrying a baby and they're in this little wooden dinghy just floating out into the mists of, of whatever body of water it is not knowing what's out there if anything is out there did they miss the boat is the boat exist at all they're just sitting waiting by a buoy and you're just waiting for nothing to happen. Eventually you do see this boat pull up, but you know, we, we're meant to, I think, assume that it's humanity project, but do we really know who could else could be on that boat? Like anybody could be on that boat. The one hint they give us is that, um, they call it like the, the RMS tomorrow or whatever the hell you call it. Yeah. And on the boat was scrawled the word tomorrow. So it's at least it's the right. We know it's the right boat. Now, could it be a, like a double cross kind of thing? I don't know. I think the implication, though, of the movie is like it works out, you know, like I, th- I think that's what it was trying to leave us with. But it was a very kind of abrupt ending, I thought. But I liked it. I, I think that it was done well. And I like the ambiguity. I like the ambiguity because you know, hope is never a a certain thing, a sure thing. So the movie kind of leaves us with that reality that, well, okay, here we go. I hope it's all going to work out. Goodbye. You know, and that's kind of, we, the audience leaves the girl, the pregnant, now the mother and her baby. We leave her just like Theo does because he dies. So we've been following him around. The, uh, he is our window into this world. And so we've been kind of hanging over his shoulder throughout the entire movie. And it seems appropriate that when he goes away, we go away. And, you know, we just have to kind of have faith. It's almost like if the movie is trying to inspire hope in people, they almost can't show you what happens next because that would defeat the purpose of hope. Then you would mm-hmm. know what happens. What's well, the idea of like faith and Christianity? If you if you knew God existed, you wouldn't be able to have faith. Exactly. Um, so one of the things that really interested me about this movie is kind of how little actually happens. It is not a convoluted or complicated story. And it's a lot of just people traveling from one place to another in a hope of finding a better place. And kind of finding almost few, few, fewer and fewer places that they want to be as things going on. Like it's, it's, there's a certain, like, um, what do you call it? A certain way in which it reminds me of like Dante and that like the deeper and deeper they go, the worse 
things get, like the, the closer to the center of hell they find themselves with the, basically the eye of the storm kind of being in there where like the final moment of peace is kind of after the crucible of having walked through hell. That part really, really interested me. For me, there's like certain scenes that just really stick out with the movie, but continue on with, with your direction. Well, okay. On the subject of scenes that stood out, one of the things that I actually wrote down was just the terror of urban warfare. Like, uh, so there's a, towards the end, there's a fairly long sequence where Theo is escorting this young lady. Key is her name, by the way. K-E-E, Key. Uh, Theo is escorting her to basically where a place where she can give birth. And it's in some, you know, Shitsville, England. And the whole place is blown to hell. People are running through the streets screaming there are corpses littering the, the streets and troops replete with tanks and automatic weapons are rolling through the streets, shooting people because the refugees who live in this area are revolting. And there's a whole like how genuine even is the revolt? Who knows? But there's a conflict. And I was just struck by a, a fairly obvious reality, but it's, it's still quite profound to see it on the screen. Urban warfare sucks. Because there's just, the urban setting is so complicated with buildings and roads and concrete barricades and signposts and all of this stuff that with all of that influx of stimuli, all of that stuff to be sensed and perceived, you can't keep track of what's about to explode. Like if you're, if you're a soldier marching across an open plain, you can reasonably expect to see cannonballs flying at you. And I'm sure that's terrible, but... In an urban setting where everything is discongruous, suddenly a building explodes over here, and then there's fire over there, and then gunshots over there. There's so much to perceive. There's no battle line. No, it's just chaos. Like, everything is coming from everywhere, and there's no way to predict. No, not at all. Uh, A mortar shell lands and explodes, and now you've got concrete shrapnel just flying all over the place if a cannonball strikes a grassy field in a battle in you know 1742 okay that sucks now there's mud all over the place you know but in a city when there's an explosion like the entire environment is made out of potential shrapnel and obviously cities don't just have troops in them they have civilians there's a scene where a, a whole group of civilians is trying to just like cross the street and they're waving a, a white handkerchief like, oh, we're civilians, let us cross. And they just get mowed down because they're in between two competing factions. Uh, and so I was just struck by urban warfare and how terrible it is and how a lot of the warfare that the United States is currently engaged in is is semi-urban warfare in the Middle East. You know, it's not like they're they don't have the same sorts of cities we do. I mean, well, they do, but. The, where the fighting is taking place isn't in like a kind of New York or, or Seattle style city. But even still, there is a lot of urban warfare in the Middle East and it just must really suck to be caught up in that. Well, and, and their, their portrayal of it is super important because in the middle of all of that, and you have these different factions within this horrible conflict, and then you have this, the, the screaming of a child, like the, the crying child. And like your first like your first moment of how powerful the, that is is when the guy who actually was trying to take the child, um, Luke, 
you know, he's he he's he's sitting there cowering as he's trying to fight, but he can't he can't bring him he can't bring himself to separate from the fact that it's like the the crying of the child. He forgot how beautiful it was, and it's it's this idea of they're in the middle of hell and and there's hope. It's like the embo- the physical embodiment of hope is in this child, and so you know it starts off that they're trying to run and not be seen, and then. You know, eventually, like everyone who sees this child is in awe and wants nothing more. Like you, you watch the factions drop away momentarily, as everyone just sees the potential future of humanity before them and will do anything to preserve it. You know, she they they walk through the hallway of you know the refugees and they're all showering it with love. And next thing you know, they're they're walking out of the building, literally into the middle of what moments ago was a firefight. And we're watching these soldiers just instinctively put down their weapons because they're in awe of what they see. Like some of them, you know, do like like refugees walk up and just try and touch the child. Like, is this even real? Am I seeing what I'm seeing? But you get like there's almost this this natural thing inside of people that the the desire to preserve humanity is so strong that it could it can just literally in a moment stop war. When it when it hits that powerfully, and in and, and that that moment in particular, it's be, it's, it, it's it's you're, you're watching hell unfold on Earth, and then complete peace, and until you, all of a sudden you hear one mortar go off, and then all hell breaks loose again. Like the, the 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 spell is broken, but it was strong enough to stop all of that on a dime. Yeah, for a moment, it pulled everybody out of the shit. And like this goes back to that spiritual thing I talked about before, where it's when everyone starts seeing the baby and then cease fire, cease fire, you know, everyone stops. For that minute, it's like they were just almost like a bucket of cold water was poured on their head. And they wake up and realize, oh, yeah, like, good. Like, reality is almost coming back to them when they see this baby because all the fighting is stupid and pointless. Like, what are you fighting for? Like you said, like, what? what's the point of innovation if there's nobody to pick it up after you? So all of the fighting is just completely mindless. There are no children left. So we're just going to, all the people that are left are just going to fight and blow each other up until everyone's dead. Like, that's the course that people are walking down for no good reason. And uh, now there's a baby. And for a moment, everyone's like, all right, let's let them out. And then kind of once they leave, they go back to fighting. <laughs> well, in 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 the in the movie, there they focus really, really exclusively on England. In the book, they do kind of make a mention of the international element of this. In which case, you have all of these different nations, and different groups of people. There's a certain degree to who do we lay blame to as to why this happened? Is there is there a race that caused this? Was that was Ground Zero? Ah. Uh. More importantly. Who's going to be the people that saves humanity? The struggle for, are we going to be the ones that find out the secret and fix this? And then we get to save our race first? It becomes a, an issue in the, in the book in a way it isn't in the... When you're talking refugees, the issue of the refugees is they're potential vectors of taking the power of fixing it away from you. Or away from your people. Right. Okay, that's an interesting element. From the book. So I do want to definitely want to talk about some kind of real world takeaways from this movie. 
But before I do, I, I we have to mention Michael Caine's character. I'm, I'm interested where you want to go on that one. <laughs> well, I just want to give the man a nod. I enjoyed that character. We don't really find out what his deal is. He's like this kind of old hippie dude who's living with his wife, I guess. And she's despondent. She doesn't move. She doesn't speak. She just sits in a wheelchair and stares. But he's in relatively good spirits. And I just liked him because he, Michael Caine's character, was the Saul of the movie. And by Saul, I mean Edward G. Robinson's character from Soylent Green. Do you remember? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I want to hear where you go with it. <laughs> okay, so if the audience can conjure in their minds the great movie Soylent Green, there's Charlton Heston's character, who is kind of born into this. He's born into this post-apocalyptic world where everything sucks, kind of like the world in this movie. But there's this old man, Saul, played by Edward G. Robinson in Soylent Green who was around before everything went to shit, who actually remembers how nice things were and could be. He remembers, you know, the woods. He remembers the beach. He remembers tasty food. He remembers animals. All these things that are removed from human experience in this film. And so he's constantly, like, trying to teach Charlton Heston's character, like, this is kind of what the world was. Don't be so cynical. And to me, this Michael Caine's character kind of served a similar role, even though I know that Theo, he was technically around and an adult before everything went to hell. Still, he's kind of got this like post-apocalyptic malaise about him where he's lost hope. He's he can't see any reason to really move forward until eventually he, he kind of finds himself again. But until that point, I forget Michael Caine's character's name. And I don't even know if they say what their relationship is, but he seems kind of like an uncle. <laughs> He's an old friend, I believe. They're just friends? Okay. Well, he is, like, growing pot and selling it to guards, and he's listening to old Deep Purple records, and just kind of, even though his life is terrible, and even though the world's falling apart around him, he still preserves this kind of, like, joviality. And I just really appreciated that. And I think Michael Caine is a uh, tremendous actor in this role, too. I think he, he nailed it. And I just enjoyed every scene he was in. I think his character is actually even a little bit deeper than that, because if you're paying attention, he goes out fighting. Mm -hmm. He's not going to put up with shit. And he's he's gunned down, literally, literally doing like a fart joke to illustrate the absurdity of these people that are chasing down the main characters now also making a point the main the people chasing him down if i'm correct that's also the people that they were with before like these are the people the other revolutionaries that were supposed to be part of things that are now trying to prevent them from doing whatever they're going to do they they want the it, it's it is the one element i think of the we want this power for ourselves you don't get to determine what happens with humanity like we this has to be more of a democratic or the argument of socialism, I guess, always kind of creeps into things like where when when the, when the chips are down and everything's on the line, you have to rely on the collective to make all decisions. When your baby is the only baby, who are you to say that it's your baby? It's our baby. It's yeah, that kind of thing. Yes. Because if it's the only one, then a lot of people feel uh, entitled to that potential. Uh, so you said the movie's not very 
convoluted and it's not, but this is like maybe the only semi, it's not even really convoluted, but like the, the only bit where you might see some convolution <laughs> is uh, in the faction that does wind up killing Michael Caine's character. It's the messy nature of human relationships. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier that Theo's former wife got him in touch with Key, the pregnant girl. This was because Theo's wife was the leader of this like revolutionary organization called the Fishers for some reason. I don't know if that has to do with Fishers of Men or whatever. In the book, there were they're called the five the five fishes. It has a mildly Christian relationship, but it was I think more about I guess in there there is an explicit Christian bent to their beliefs and in the novelization for sure. Okay. Um, one of the guys is actually a preacher or a priest that's in the little group. Who I believe the priest is the one who turns out to be the fa- the actual father of the child. Mm, of course. The book focused a lot more on interpersonal shit than it did anything else. Like There's this backdrop of them trying to escape, but it's really about people's relationships. Another thing like that we you it's not clear necessarily in the movie as it is in the book. There's also these factions of like outsiders. Like you remember the people that burn the car to stop them in the initial Yeah. That's an entire different faction of type of people. Like, like basically people that are bandits and have given up on civilization entirely and are, you know, living their lives <laughs> in the woods, k- killing anyone that comes through, possibly eating them. It's not really clear. Okay. But uh, bad, bad juju. So, like, basically, it, there's a whole ton of stratification of humanity that goes in in the book, for sure. And it focuses a little bit more on those elements. Okay. The, the movie's good at just, like, it's much better at the tone of the effect that this would have on civilization. Yeah, and it gives you, there's enough of that human complication that shines through to make it believable. So, you know, Theo gets hooked up with Key by way of his former wife and this revolutionary organization, and then they are ambushed and Theo's ex-wife is killed. And it's later revealed that there was basically a coup within the revolutionary organization that her deputy or her lieutenant basically was uh, behind it. And now he's in charge. And uh, so this is where the complication sets in, where now Theo and Key are on the run from the only people they thought were on their side. The only place they have to go is uh, Michael Caine's house. And they do so, but are tracked down. And then Michael Caine basically sacrifices himself in order to give them a head start running away. And um, yeah, it was it was nice. That was, to me, I don't know why, but to me, that was the most, I guess, moving part of the movie. So there's something about the old, like it's almost an archetypal thing, but something about the old man who's willing to die, like who, who who's not just like willing to go into battle and maybe die, but like knows 100% he's going to die right here and does it anyway in order that the next generation might go on. To me, that's just a beautiful thing. Which brings me to, COVID. I guess, the two reasons <laughs> that I chose this this particular movie right now. We, in the past couple years, have lived through a particular time in human history where the children or the future of the world were literally told not to live their lives for the benefit of the elderly. Yeah. Like, number one, the, the, the idea that pres- preserving life for the old 
is more important than living life for the youth. The other thing is, obviously, with the rollout of particular a particular type of chemical out into society that we were all told that we needed to take, we have in the world currently, well, you have factions of people that believe that we are overpopulating and that we need to take drastic measures to stop people from having an effect on the planet. The natural offshoot of all the things that they suggest we do will be depopulation. Now, this is all in a world where we all know that all industrialized nations are already depopulating themselves by having less kids. The only places in which we have growth of population is in third world nations and developing nations. So we've already discussed the problems with our current economic system from the movie that why there's problems in that, how this ends up badly. Add to that the fact that we have seen actual complications from things like vaccination across the globe, adding to the possibility of even further depopulation concerns. And so to me, this movie just seemed very timeless or like very time appropriate to some things that are going on within our global civilization right now. So I wanted to ask the question, is this movie in its intention and in its moral a counterpoint to the Malthusian depopulation ideology, in your opinion. Do you think this movie is trying to say, like, hey, people are good, don't get rid of them? I see, and I don't know that the movie takes its stance on that. I, I, think, I mean, obviously, it, it portrays the fact that people are terrible. Right. And, like, all it takes is a little loss of hope, and we are going to completely destroy ourselves. So where does that really fall in the line? Like... I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I she, if she was around, I'd ask her what the point yeah. was, frankly, because it, it, it's the movie isn't filmed certainly in such a way as to give a message so much as almost like a snapshot of like a worst case scenario. It feels like it's it's more about mood than it is message. I guess I, I felt like. Okay, so I get that, and I think the movie. It really does a great job of conveying that mood. But if there is a message, maybe it's not even an, an intended message. I think that there's some significance to the fact that the whole plot revolves around the crisis being not enough people. Whereas if we were to kind of imagine a story that's based on the common narrative that you already laid out, that generally speaking... People are bad. There are too many of us. We're damaging the environment, blah, blah, blah. You would imagine a story that instead would be a world overrun by people. And like that would be the dystopia. And like the crisis is too many people and too many babies. This movie flips it around. I already mentioned Soylent Green. Soylent Green's premise was basically in a world where global warming has ruined everything and overpopulation has broken everything. This is the opposite kind of dystopia. And I think there's a significance to that because, again, if you look at like the UN <laughs> and uh, sustainable development in Agenda 21, all this stuff that, that we all know about, um, if you, you were to imagine a kind of propaganda piece coming from that angle, it would not be this. And so to see something so starkly opposite the, the common narrative that there are too many people, to me anyway, is, is significant. Well, it's, it's also possible that they just want to cover their bases, that no matter what terrible thing happens, it's our fault <laughs> and we should be, feel guilty about it. <laughs> well, that could be too. So the part I always love to 
I'm curious if, if there was any particular references that this kind of put in your mind, things that you immediately kind of jumped to as far as like books or resources. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I was drawn by this movie back to the entire idea of eugenics and population control. Even though the movie isn't technically about eugenics and population control, it's sort of implied. Again, because we're having to deal morally and politically in this movie with the question of what is the role of human reproductivity. Clearly, the movie shows that without children, without reproduction, everything falls apart rapidly. So this kind of brought to my mind those individuals throughout history who have sought to limit human reproduction, uh, because in their mind, that would lead to a better, more prosperous and ultimately utopian society. So the science of eugenics, for people who don't know, goes back to the mid 1800s with Francis Galton, who is uh, he was a polymath. He was a very intelligent man. He's in fact the guy who discovered that all fingerprints are different, among other things. He was he was a very interesting guy, but one of the things he decided upon was that uh, physical traits are not the only traits that are passed along genetically, that mental and spiritual traits are passed along genetically as well. So for instance, if you're a poor drunk, it was probable, genetically speaking, that your children and their children and their children would also be miserable, stupid drunks. And that line of thinking gets uh, combined with the thinking of Thomas Malthus, who basically believed that human population numbers were increasing too rapidly for the human productive capacity to keep up. So basically, there were going to be more poor people than there were f than there was food available. And so the human race would just kind of collapse in this overpopulated sea of starvation and poverty. So you combine Galton's ideas and Malthus's ideas together, and you get a very tidy scientific justification for getting rid of huge swaths of the population. Incidentally, Galton and Malthus were cousins fairly distant cousins, but they were related, and um, they were also related to Charles Darwin. He was a cousin of both of those individuals as well, and his theory of the preservation of the favored races, which was um, part of the original title of Origin of Species, his, his theory of evolution also kind of added some weight to this idea that human genetic characteristics can be modified scientifically. So, with Malthus, we get a reason to get rid of the poor because there are going to be too many of them. And with Galton and Darwin, we get this commensurate idea that while we get rid of the poor, we can also focus on breeding certain other elite families and create a master race. So that's basically the history of eugenics as it started. Uh, and of course, it came over to America fairly quickly in 1907. The very first eugenic sterilization laws were passed. Not in Nazi Germany. There was no Nazi Germany yet. It was in the state of Indiana, uh, where people were first forcibly sterilized by law. And often they didn't actually know what was happening. There was virtually no informed consent. And rapidly other states followed suit. In fact, I believe it was either 1909 or 1911 that New Jersey implemented its own forced sterilization law at a time when Woodrow Wilson, 
the great Woodrow Wilson, was governor of that state. Uh, it was even today. There are, I believe, 31 states right now who still have forced sterilization laws on the books. Now, how often are they enforced? Who knows? That would be an interesting study if anyone wants to follow up on that morbid tangent. But uh, still, that means the majority of states in the United States have eugenic laws still on the books. Forced sterilization went on for decades in this country. It peaked during the Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt administration and uh, something like 60,000 people of all races, not of all classes, but of all races uh, have been sterilized in this country. Some 60,000 people since uh, 1907. And it's probably more than that. It's where we get words like idiot and imbecile, which these are actual legal terms. Correct. Yeah. To determine like the particular level of intelligence of person so that they could be forced sterilized to prevent them from breeding. Yeah. So in my book, I mention one case of this in my chapter about progressivism and how wonderful that is. Buck v. Bell is a Supreme Court case from 1927 in which a young woman, Carrie Buck, I believe it was Virginia. Pretty sure it was Virginia. She was raped and impregnated by rape. And because she was an unwed mother at that point, because she was raped, the state determined that she needed to be examined for, for fitness because she wasn't married. And they basically found out that, well, she was feeble minded. She was an idiot and she wasn't capable of caring for herself and certainly not for a baby. And they did this by determining that her mother had also been an idiot. And then when the baby was born, at the age of seven months, I believe it was, the government examined the baby at seven months and determined that she was feeble-minded. And so, famously, the Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, declared three generations of imbeciles is enough. And they sterilized young Carrie Buck. And that case, as I said with other eugenic cases, uh, that's still on the books. That is Supreme Court law. And it, it's worth uh, noting that the justification, the legal justification and precedent that the Supreme Court cited in that case was uh, that we have already determined that for the public good, the state has a right to force vaccination. So that was how they justified forcing sterilization, that basically it's the same thing. It's the same moral category of thing, that if there's a disease going around that's a public danger, then you have a right to force people to be vaccinated. Well, if there's a genetic scourge going around, such as poverty and feeble-mindedness and drunkenness, then equally you have a right to force sterilization. It's all about improving the common stock. So I'm sure that's not relevant to anything going on now. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, more and more interesting. I was going to point out that that's not the last time that that was challenged as doctrine. Uh, the vaccine uh, thing, I want to say it was even so in within like the 20, 2000s or, or 21st century has been challenged and upheld that the government has a right to stab you whatever the hell they want. Yeah, absolutely. And the precedent goes back 100 years and it revolves around this idea that the state is in its ideal form supposed to uphold the common good. There's a utilitarian 
philosophy underlying eugenics, uh, forced eugenics and forced vaccination and a whole bunch of other stuff, too. There's a utilitarian philosophy underneath it, which is that if if we can improve the common stock, if we can make life better for the greater good, even if that means a greater good far off into the future, then we have to do it. We're obligated to do it. And the trouble is, while, of course, planning ahead is a good idea, a lot of this stuff is, let's say, scientifically untenable. Like eugenics is not as it was mapped out by the likes of Galton and and Darwin to an extent, and Darwin's children, by the way, who were also eugenicists. Um, It wasn't sound scientific theory. It was, I mean, a lot of these guys resorted to incest, for Christ's sake. I mean, scientifically speaking, incest is not a good idea. But these people were kind of continuing an almost intuitive pattern that had possessed royals and elites for thousands of years, which was inbreeding and preserving, for whatever reason, their genetic stock in favor of the genetic stock of others. Where does this come from? I don't know. But it was present in Egypt, where it was common for pharaohs to marry their sisters. Uh, It was common in the Habsburg dynasty of the Holy Roman Empire. It was it's common throughout royal families all throughout history. Inbreeding. Why? I don't know. And uh, in the mid to late 1800s, science finally showed up to kind of give a, a legitimacy to this idea of eugenics, but it had always been practiced. And uh, it's kind of nuts <laughs> when you realize that so much of what we deal with now and so much of the like environmental rhetoric, in my opinion, is sort of a guise for eugenics. And I'll just give one, one of many uh, pieces where people can kind of dive into that angle if they're interested. Julian Huxley, who's the founder of UNESCO and a very big uh, mover and shaker within the original UN circuit, Incidentally, Julian Huxley is also the man who coined the term transhumanism. So, okay, maybe that's relevant. He was the chairman of the British Eugenics Society. And um, there are many such cases where people who were working within the early environmental movement were eugenicists, like admitted eugenicists. So, geez, where do we go from here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, in particular, there was another organization, I believe, that they they were all a part of called the Fabian Socialist Society. A number of them were, yes. Uh, I mean, you're listing off names like, yep, uh, Fabian Socialist, Fabian Socialist. How else might people know the name Huxley? Because this actually kind of gets to why we started this uh, entire podcast. Yeah, well, Julian's brother was Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World, which is, of course, one of the great dystopian, utopian novels, manuals, Whatever it is, um, that was a product of all this, actually. Yeah, I mean, when you're that close to the source, I guess. Uh, I'm, I just want to ask, how is your relationship to your brother there, Aldous? Right. Well, and let's not forget who their grandpa was. Their grandfather was Thomas Henry Huxley, and he was Darwin's biggest advocate. He was the guy who actually got Darwin's ideas out into the public. They called him Darwin's bulldog. So it, interesting that. And also, like, the Huxleys, the Darwins, the Galtons, and the Wedgwoods, this... this those four families actually did like interbreed with each other because they considered themselves to be of superior stock. Uh, some of them turned out to be, you know, inbred babbling morons, of course. But uh, nonetheless, they were convinced that they were 
going to pave the way for a new Superman and Ubermenschen. Uh, all of the, the kind of race supremacy shit that the Nazis did that they enacted, it was all derivative. It's all derived from this British and American eugenic stuff that started decades earlier. Uh, Hitler didn't really come up with anything new. He put a Teutonic spin on what had already been in motion by the most powerful and respected American and British institutions for 30 years at that point. It all starts here. It starts in California and London and Indiana. Well, there got a lot of help. Got a lot, a lot of help from that governor of New Jersey. Yes, yeah. Let's not let Woodrow off the hook. I should also mention that a more modern, I guess, example of how this ties into environmentalism—the whole eugenics thing—is um, a gentleman by the name of Paul Ehrlich, who I'm sure you're familiar with. He wrote a book back in. 68, maybe, called The Population Bomb, in which, just like Malthus, he suggested that the human population was increasing far too rapidly for food production to keep pace, that by the year 2000, we were all going to be dead, basically. He famously once said that there was that there's no way that there will be 7 billion people around the year 2000, because there's just not going to be enough stuff. He made all of these predictions about resources being too expensive, and he was wrong about everything. He was always, and he's never changed his tune, though. This guy's in his 80s or 90s now. He's still around. He's still teaching, as far as I know. He's still uh, an actual, what do you call it? He's still a resource that current presidents go to. Yeah. They still listen to this guy. Yes. Yeah, he's, he's still considered a well-respected intellectual in this vein, and... Um, it's, it's, it ties into the climate thing because there are so many people, especially those in the sort of popular international climate movement. I don't really we need to we need to come up with a term for like the shitty climate movement, because in a manner of speaking, you and I are kind of like environmentalists. But I don't want to. But I'm not like. Absolutely. <laughs> but I'm not one of them. Not one of them. Right. So we have to we have to come up with some new terms here. But it's the air people and the soil people in my world, in my mind. Yeah, okay. There's the people that are worried about the air temperature, whereas I'm more concerned with the lack of living crap in our ground yeah. anymore. Okay, so the air people go to Ehrlich. Um, and he's big in it because, of course, you know, human beings, just by virtue of existing, they consume and they have carbon footprints. And all of this is just terrible, and so we need to get rid of people or at least discourage reproduction. And, I mean, Jesus Christ, nowadays with these, you know, millennials, I've, I've heard people say that, like, I'm not having kids because it's bad for the environment, because it's just another mouth. The, the idea of, oh, great, another mouth to feed has become, like, a, a climatological point where, like, if I have a baby, I'm creating a resource draw but that's all predicated on the assumption that, like, there's a fixed amount of food or something, which is just, I mean, we don't have to get in right here breaking down Malthusianism and why it doesn't make any sense, but... Never has. But the point that I was getting to by bringing up... While we're on Malthus, let's not forget that one of the most highest grossing films of all time involved a character that was explicitly Malthusian in nature. The snap in the Marvel movies, as it's referred to. Oh, yeah. That was, he had explicitly Malthusian plans. The galaxies were all overpopulating, and the only way to fix the universe was to reduce the population by half. Yes. And he got rid of half of everybody. And that doesn't make sense. 
I don't think we even need to explain why it doesn't make sense. There were people that were holding up, uh, holding up Thanos was right. Of course. You know, there are those people that legitimately were on his side. Of course. Yeah, there, there is a popular Malthusian strain that people suck, that were a cancer upon the earth, and that the less of us there are, the better. And maybe zero is the right number. So, you know, back to the movie, a lot of people might see this as kind of a best case scenario. Like, sure, it sucks for the people who have to live through it, but hey, at least, you know, a hundred years after the movie takes place, if there were no baby born, well, okay, then nature would, you know, take over the planet again. And wouldn't that be great? And I don't understand why these people give a shit about like nature being better than human beings. I, I don't know. But um, the reason I brought up Ehrlich was because back in 1977, he co-authored a book called Eco Science with John P. Holdren, who later became Barack Obama's so-called science czar. Um, and in that book, in that book, Ehrlich and Holdren suggested that one method that might uh, might help curb growing population was to take a nation's water supply and fill it with birth control drugs to actually lace water that people drink and consume and shower in with anti-fertility drugs. And then when people decide they want to have a child, they have to go to a special place, ostensibly a government run bureau, and then apply for the antidote. So I'm sure that, you know, you could read Ehrlich and Holdren saying that and say, oh, well, I'm sure I'm sure they only have their best intentions in mind and they're really just concerned about the environment. And I'm sure there's no ulterior motives and I'm sure that there's no way that this could be abused. But to my understanding of the world and humans in reality, I don't see how such a program could possibly be realistically interpreted interpreted in any other way than a eugenic program. The government will be deciding who gets to reproduce. If this is all about population control and you have to apply for the antidote to this ubiquitous birth control, it doesn't seem that crazy to me to think that there are going to be some cases, some applications where the government says, no, we're not giving it to you. You know, because why? Who knows? Take a pick. It could be racial. It could be because you're a criminal. It could be for whatever reason. They could say, no, you know, we've met our quota. Try again next year. But it, it puts the power of reproduction in the hand of a centralized body. And they actually posited this idea. And of course, later on, China implemented its one child policy, which, of course, didn't drug the water supply. They just went straight to smothering babies. Uh, and when China finally did back up on this policy, when they removed the one child policy, Ehrlich was one of the loudest voices ridiculing and mocking them, calling them the like infinite growth crowd or whatever when in fact their population had been declining. So really sick shit here. And it's about monopolizing humanity's ability to reproduce itself, which is like the ultimate form of totalitarianism. I, yeah, absolutely. Any last uh, last notes you want to get in here? Are we uh, ready to decide what we're doing next, next, next month? Oh, geez. Well, as far as last notes go, I'll just say that... Uh, <laughs> I just got random stuff written down here. Alexander Graham Bell wanted to eliminate deaf people, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. What else? There, <laughs> this is as old as political theory, eugenics. Read Plato's Republic. It's in there, too. He talks about a kind of totalitarian state needing to control the birth 
and reproduction of its people. As I said, it goes back to Egypt as well. There's always a justification for it, be it preserving the divine blood or saving the planet, saving the environment, which is what it is now. This was a very interesting movie for me to watch at this point in life, particularly because by the time this episode comes out, I may have a baby. <laughs> I don't know. It kind of, it's any day now at this point. So, uh, it was, it was very interesting to watch that and kind of added a new layer for me. You're being a radical by having a kid, man. I know, and, and we're going super radical. We're going to do it at home, too. So that really keeping her out of the system. But uh, for people who are interested in learning more about eugenics and depopulation and all of the, these kinds of things, I would recommend um, James Corbett's How and Why Big Oil Conquered the World documentary duo. That's a really good starting place to learn about eugenics. I would recommend Peace Revolution podcast by Richard Grove. Uh, in, in particular, episode 64 is about eugenics. I'd recommend uh, John Taylor Gatto, The uh, Ultimate History Lesson and the Underground History of American Education. And for Christ's sake, even Alex Jones's uh, Endgame documentary talks about it. I don't usually recommend Alex Jones for what I think are obvious reasons, but even that, like if you're willing to kind of parse through his, his bullshit, you can get a decent understanding of it from that too. But the best source for people who really care, probably the best source on eugenics, particularly in America, would be a book called The War Against the Weak, which is this right here, by Edwin Black. He also wrote a book called IBM and the Holocaust. Uh, but War Against the Weak... Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he goes into detail about how American companies, IBM, uh, actually helped automate the Holocaust. Like, you know, you see those little numbers, the tattoo numbers on Holocaust victims. What do you think those were for? They were for tabulating machines that were developed by IBM. It's not quite that simple. I'm, I'm whatever. In this book, <laughs> War Against the Weak, it's, it's thick, as you can see, and it's just all about, in painstaking detail, how eugenics spread across the United States. And if you want to learn about it, that would be the book to get. So that's, uh, I think that does it for me. Um, as far as for what we're going to do next time, I don't know, what do you want to do? Well, technically it's your choice this month. Well, shit, okay. We did a movie just now about no babies. You want to do Soylent Green next? I had a feeling that was going to be what you were going to pick just because it came up in the episode, honestly. Yeah, well, I think that it's a, it'll be a good pairing because it's, like I said already, it's kind of the opposite dystopia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I imagine I'm going to have a ton of crap to say about this one. <laughs> oh, yeah, dude, you're going to, yeah, you're going to go off on this movie. Just based on my environmental positions. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about this. <laughs> I'm gonna be a rave, I'm gonna be a raving madman ripping my hair out the whole episode. Yes, yes. Sounds good to me, man. I, I, I'm looking forward to doing that. Uh, I actually, I think I've already chosen uh, what we're gonna be doing after that. Okay, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it. It's kind of between one or two movies, but everyone out there, thank you so much for listening today. And I'm gonna leave you with uh, the, the catchphrase I try and get every time: <laughs> keep one eye over your shoulder. And the other on the screen. Take it easy. Do you have a small business or side hustle? Looking to start one? One of the biggest reasons new businesses fail or never get off the ground at all is not understanding marketing as part of the process. You might have the best product in the world, but if you don't understand how to get traffic and convert it, it'll be all for nothing. 
If you'd like to avoid rookie mistakes and put your best foot forward, go to nickypcopywriter.com slash road to hell and let me help.